Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Lizanne Schuyler is the producer of Brillo Box, Three Cents Off, an HBO documentary. The film focuses on her family's Andy Warhol sculpture that was sold in 2010 for $3 million. But it's really an exploration of the conflicts and conundrums of contemporary art collecting. Lisanna, I just watched your documentary, Brillo Box, Three Cents Off, uh, and it comes out uh, on HBO on August 7th. I wanted you to start by just uh, giving a synopsis of the movie to the listeners so they understand what it's about, and then we can talk about how the movie came about. Sure. So Brillo Box, Three Cents Off is the story of a journey of a yellow three cents off Andy Warhol Brillo Box. And it follows the film through my own family. They had acquired it in the late 60s from art dealer Ivan Karp. And the film follows um, this Brillo box as it changes hands over shifting economic landscapes and different cultural moments. Um, And eventually it lands in a Christie's auction where it sells for over $3 million, whereas my parents had purchased it for a mere 1,000 40 years earlier. And in doing that, it really looks at the different ways in which we engage with art and the different... um, values and emotion it bring it brings up in us and ultimately the film looks at the role of this um or really what the brillo box meant in my in my own family so the sale was in 2010 when um robert chapezian's estate was sold at uh, christie's was it just the uh excitement of uh, this thing that had been in your parents living room selling for three million dollars that uh inspired you to make the uh, movie uh, and or was it something you waited, uh, you know, it's what seven years ago uh, to be able to put it together? So in some ways, yes, because once that sale happened, it really framed the story. But actually, I had been thinking about I, I had started to do a film about the Brillo box. Um, I, you know, prior to that, prior to starting the film about about the Brillo box, I had just finished a short fiction piece, which was based on um the novel Capture the Flag by Rebecca Chase, and it was very much a family nostalgic story set in the 70s, and it just got me thinking about my own family and really just how my parents were such um, amazing characters to me. You know, they had really um, were very ahead of their time, and we grew up with this art that, you know, as kids, we took for granted that my parents just had, you know, offbeat taste, but I, I it, it kind of, I felt, started feeling compelled to go back and look at that time, and I, I wanted to tell a story about um, their art collecting, but I wanted to tell it in a way that was beyond my family. I wanted to really look at the different ways in which to respond to art and the commingling of financial realities and um, emotional impulses. And I felt like if you travel, if you followed one work of art, you'd really be able to explore all these different, these different, um, you know, ways we handle art, ways we respond to art. Um, and I always knew that, you know, my parents, they had an amazing collection. And at one point they had artists like Neil Jenny, Roy Lichtenstein, Idel Weber, Ralph Goings. Um, but I always felt like the Brillo box was the work to follow because it's such it's its own character in art history. It's like this little trickster that keeps changing shapes and people always want to keep talking about it and artists want to keep appropriating it. And so um, I, you know, it, I was literally just driving with my mom and I was like, what happened to that Brillo box? You know, and because, you know, we have that picture in the family album um, that you see in the film. And that picture was always like this little mystery to me. So we started talking about it and I did a little interview with my mom and my dad just to kind of kind of like a screen test, you know, and see what they would be like. And as they, as we did these interviews, I just became more and more fascinated by the stories they told and, 
and I didn't realize to the degree to which they were embedded in that world, um, um, and how just how much it was really our life for that you know for that period. And shortly after that, um, my mom calls me, and it's, this is now November of 2010, and she said, "Have you seen the Christie's catalog?" And I said, "No, no, I haven't." And she said, "Well, I really think your Brilla box must be there." And I said, "Well, I said that would be an amazing coincidence, right? Like I start this film about a Brilla box, and then it, and I had no idea at that point how I would ever find it." And she said, well, they have a lot of pop art. I really, I really think you should check. And she actually had to call me like two times before I finally checked. And then I, um, I was looking at my little, my little phone and I was just scrolling through and there was the yellow Brillo box with the, th- you know, with the three cents off and the provenance from Ivan Karp and um, the detail of that, of the red signature and crayon, the signature and red crayon that my father had insisted on getting when he acquired it. I was just going to say that was the real tell that it was your box yeah. and not just one of the few, what was it? There were 17 made and then the few surviving ones. Yeah, it was believed about 17. And I know there was definitely, oh, there's always question, you know, like, um, and, but that red signature when we, you know, we tr- like, um, I, I had sent someone to go film it because I was far away and it was like trying to put this together and, and film and film all this. And I remember when I saw the footage and they, um, um, one of the um, art handlers at Christie's turned over the box and there was a red signature and I just was like not in my stomach, you know, like this like total butterfly, like it, it was thrilling, you know, to see it again. Ha- had you talked to Laura Paulson or other people at Christie's before the sale? No, um, I I found out about the sale and as soon as I saw it, I called and um, I really was, this is good just thinking this is going to sound completely crazy. Like here, this person says, I'm the daughter of someone that once owned this and I want to make a film about it. And I, you know, I thought it would sound like, you know, here's this lunatic, you know, calling. And, um, and actually Christie's was so, um, it, just incredibly welcoming to the project and, um, allowed us to come and film. And then, um, and then my, I had some friends advising me and they were like, if you can get an interview, it's, you have to get Laura Paulson. Like that's the person. And, and um, the person I was working with, Chrissy, said, um, you, you know, if you'd like to interview someone, Laura Paulson would be available. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that would be amazing because I knew who she was. But then as we did the interview, I learned much more about her connection to the work. It was, it was you know, quite profound because she had been friends with Robert Shapazian, you know, also um, and had, you know, lived through the 80s and been in the art world for so long and really had a very um, uh, emotional connection to the story. Well, uh, I want to talk about Shapazian in a second, but tell me just, you, you, you know that this is your family's, uh, I don't want to call it an heirloom, but you, this object that has a significance in your family, uh, uh, no small part just because there are baby pictures of you resting upon this <laughs> box, and you know, uh, uh, in, in, as we find out in the film, that it's a, it's a bit of a bone of contention that uh, your father uh, uh, sold it. You've, you've decided already to sort of uh, follow it, but you're there in the back of that auction room with your cameras when the lot comes up. Could you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Um, so I, I actually had a film at long distance, like in the sense that um, I found, I found out about it so um, quickly. So that it was like kind of putting, had to put it together really fast. So like if we found about, found out about the sale about two days before it happened. So I actually found a shooter and um, talk, you know, immediately had to kind of, explain how this should be shot and how, how it would be done. So I wasn't really there, but I was in constant contact with him. And um, it was, I was very nervous. Like I was very nervous for my parents. Like how would it feel if it sells for a lot? And I didn't want my parents to feel bad. And, and there was, 
it's a very hard feeling to describe because, um, you know, you know intellectually that this is like a long time ago and they part of it was a long time ago. Um, you know, but it's, it's, um, it's like that classic, like, oh my gosh, well, what would have happened if, you know, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I think in the beginning it was all very much about that price point, you know, like, oh wow, $3 million. How does something go from this to that? But as I worked more in the film and really started, you know, interviewed my parents again and really started talking about it, it was really that, you know, the box was just so much more than that to us, you know. But just talk about that moment. So it does make, you know, $2.6 in the hammer. Right. Ultimately, it's a $3 million uh, sale. And that thing you, you were nervous about, worried about happening has happened. What was happened. your first reaction and, and what was your each of your parents' reaction when you either they were aware of it following the sale or you told them uh, about it? chagrin excitement i mean because one of the big things is always that prices uh, we always talk about it as this sort of envy of lost opportunity but at the same time it's validation i own this thing right. and look at yes. what it went on to be an important uh, object you are you exactly said it it was this mix of oh my gosh we could still have that with wow like that's our it was like that's our child that's gone on to do well you know it, there really was that feeling also. And I, and I think my dad probably felt my, my dad is someone who really doesn't look back. And, um, um, and I think he did feel a certain sense of pride in that. And, um, you know, that like he, he had that taste and he had that foresight to get it, you know, to get it signed, which world was not doing at the time. And I think for my mom, like my mom always felt it would be a very important work. And so in some ways I think she already, it wasn't like surprising to her, you know? Um, but I think that it also, um, so yeah, there's that mix of kind of shock and awe and like, Oh wow. You know? And, um, you know, yeah. I mean, I really did feel, I personally felt this sense of pride. Like it was something we once owned. It was part of our family. It was in our living room. And now it's been on the center stage of the art world and people fought to get this and it's a very, you know, dramatic sale. Um, but I think that like it went, you know, it, it um, the, you think at first about like this price point and it's like, wow, it's, you know, it's validating. It's all these things. It's maybe lost opportunity. Um, but it really then forces you. And I think that's kind of what the journey of the film was to kind of go like, what are the other aspects of this value? You know, what are the other things that meant? Well, I mean, I mean, so it's hard to separate the value of that work from the the time. Your parents may have held on to it for for you know what they owned it for two years. They may have held on to it for another fifteen or twenty, and right. you know sold it for a little bit of money, but not necessarily a lot. They might have held on yeah. to it for forty, and it might not have gotten to the exactly. level because you know Chapazian is is not exactly just sort of a, some collector. He's a very specific right. uh, a person and. And, uh, you know, as you, you do so well in the film, show how it was situated among other objects uh, within his collection that gave it even more appeal to uh, uh, buyers. Uh, what I was sort of most interested in is you, you mentioned earlier about your parents being embedded in the contemporary art world in the uh, 70s. And I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that. We, we There's a a running theme in the interviews between your parents of your father praising your mother as a sort of having a natural eye and being attached to the objects and their significance. And he being interested in the art, but also acutely aware that the only way he could continue to acquire art was to actually sell some of the art that, that they, they owned. And they're, they're kind of nice, two different uh, sort of hemispheres of the of the full experience of what contemporary art collectors uh, uh, go through. 
Right. Absolutely. And my dad is very, um, he's, he is a blend of both because he really was drawn to the art world and drawn to art. And he, he wasn't trained. He didn't go to art school. He was an attorney. Like his parents never, as as clear in the film, his parents probably never looked at anything, any kind of visual art in their lives. And, um, and he was really drawn to it. And he really looked at it as a way to invest um, money that he really enjoyed, that he was really passionate about. Like he once made a joke, like, you know, you can't frame a, hundred dollar bill on the wall of course you know warhols you know did <laughs> like you know made art about money but um you know he really he really enjoyed it and he really did get the art and but it was you know he they were very young at the time they were starting a family my dad was working as, as an assistant da we were living in a tiny little you know it was like a one-bedroom apartment that they you know partitioned off into two and you know the money money like for any starting family is is, is an issue and um you know there was so there was this constant balance of like well you know selling what we could part with to get new things. And he always wanted to buy more art too. That's really important about my dad. He would get interested in new things. And, you know, some people looked at it like, you know, you, because my dad kept turning things over, we were exposed as children, exposed to more works. You know, we got to see more, more work on the wall um, and experience the work and then, and then move on to new, new things. But, um, well, you know, my there's, mom was definitely, my mom loves to keep everything. My mom for like, like only until recently did she start parting with her vintage clothing collection. <laughs> like my mom does really, and she would always be like, don't sell, ever sell that. Like, don't sell that, you know, sample sale item. I got. You know, like she's very much understands that things grow most, in most cases, things grow in value, you know? So she always had that, that need to hold on to things. But your parents spent a lot of time going to galleries and uh, looking for new artists and keeping up on whose reputation was up and down. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were not they were not static collectors that way of just sort of buying what had already been uh, established. They were constantly looking for they something new. Yeah, absolutely. They were definitely discovering. Um, my uh, my my dad took great pride on if he discovered something like uh, there was an artist named. Um, York Stever, and he got to the, you know, he would he would go to the shows before they opened. He would usually go, he'd work downtown, so he would go to Ivan's, you know, like, as they were, he would try to go when they were hanging, actually. And, he you know, he once told a story about taking the picture, you know, from this artist's show, and then that picture is the one they put in art forum, and he felt really great about, you know, being the first to kind of identify something and then to identify, you know, talent, which is, I think, a very exciting thing. I think it's really, it's exciting to be, like, an early adopter and discover something and share that, you know, with people. Yeah, I think that's what drives so many uh, collectors. And that's part of so much of the confusion around uh, contemporary art collecting, uh, especially since uh, people are fixated on the money, is that the money's just a marker. And a lot of the trading is more about um, validation and getting there first and, and sort of showing that you uh, could see something before others did. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's kind of funny. We, we've spent the last few years people being upset and about people flipping in the art market. And here your parents uh, 40 years ago are participating in the market in the same way as uh, maybe not in the same scale as some collectors today, but definitely in the same manner of, you know, wanting to be in early, often feeling like that, you know, for either uh, financial or just wall space or storage reasons that they can't hold on to everything and, and, and trying to trade up. I mean, I think you're, you, you make a, I think a great point of looking at the 
uh, artist your father sold the Warhol to acquire. And uh, I wonder if you could just tell a little bit of that story, because I think that kind of encapsulates the hit or miss nature of uh, the way the art market works. Right. Oh, yes. And I love this story, too, because um, around the time I, I live in Arizona, around the time I moved here, my, um, the artist that we were talking about, Peter Young, um, my mom had sent me an article about him because he had a big PS1 show in 2000, I think 2007. And she was like, this is, or maybe 2006. She's like, this is the artist that this is, you know, we, we have this artist. And, and um, my dad had gotten to know Peter. Peter is, um, as you, I think see in the film, is um, a highly charismatic, profoundly intelligent, um, just really captivating artist and, and person to, to talk with. And my dad remembered meeting Peter and going around Soho looking at art with him. And this is around the time of this, of the, when my dad traded the Brilla Box for work by him. And I really think that part of it, I mean, my, I speculate that part of it, um, besides my dad really liked Peter's work. And I, I think my dad really appreciated abstract work quite a bit. Whereas my mom, I think, um, was a little more pop, pop motivated, pop oriented. Um, you know, he really liked Peter. And I think there was like, you know, when you buy a work by an artist, you know, it's just, it's a really deep connection. So I think that was kind of part of it, but it's also true that at that point, Peter was really rising. Um, he had just, um, joined the Castelli gallery. He was a lot, all the right collectors were collecting him, you know, um, I mean, as an example, there's that famous skull sale that happened in 73 that kind of people look at as a turning point in the history when Robert and Ethel skull separated and then their, um, collection got sold um he was um, there's a work by peter in that sale so he was really in the centerpiece of like or right in the center of, of that world and um as, as it happened peter decided to um leave the city and um he still always continued to practice and to create work but he wanted to do it on his own terms and, and leave and not be kind of caught up in the market you know, the, you know at the time he viewed um and he was concerned about the the impact a market has on an audience, and the or, or sorry on the on the artist and the kind of awareness that you know the pressure that can put on the artist, which is very um, uh, quite a bit of foresight, you know. And but but the fact that he left kind of changed his kind of stature at the time. But the great thing is that Peter has continued to get more and more recognition. You know, late, lately um, he's got a new a new gallerist in San Francisco, Gallery Wendy Norris. And um, he is just continuing to get new audiences. Young people love him. <laughs> like, and so I feel like that story is not over yet. You know, so at the time it was like, you know, people would joke, Peter who? You know, like, and, and even and when I met Peter, this was really funny. So I wrote him and I said, hey, you know, I'm in Arizona. And my dad used to own one of your works. And he traded a Brillo box to get one of your drawings. And he was like, that is just hilarious. And so he took me all over, you know, he said, come up to this and where he lives and took me all over, introduced me to his friends. And he was like, her dad traded a Brillo box for one of my pictures. <laughs> like, and isn't that hilarious? And they were all like laughing. Um, but you know, Peter's story is not over yet. He is still working and um, a lot of interest building in his work. So, And I'm sure your father is, is uh, betting that he'll be proved right eventually that, uh, that it was a good trade. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, but that's the whole point too. It's like, it's like culture is always shifting and, you know, I mean, people, um, the biggest surprise, there were, I guess there were like a couple, a couple of surprises. I mean, when the box turned up and sold for $3 million, and, and of course, we knew it would be something amazing, and we knew it would be a big price, but that was pretty incredible. Um, you know, that really kind of spun the film in a certain direction. But as I researched it, in particular talking with Daniel Wolf, who appears in the film, and he's a um, photography collector who um, or dealer who um, 
who had produced the Andy Warhol documentary that was on PBS that Rick Burns directed and and hearing him tell me that, you know, really talk about that moment when Warhol was just not appreciated and people thought he was just very business oriented and he would do these portraits and that's all he cared about was making you know, 30K for a portrait and, you know, pe- and people just really neglected to sort of see the profound implications of his body of work. And, you know, looking at that from the lens of 2010, it was just really amazing to think about that. But as I, as I did ponder that, it really reminded me of being a kid, of being a teen and, Warhol was that guy you'd see at Danceteria and Studio and, you know. Showed up like, on the love boat, yeah. Exactly, like the love boat, you know, um, you know, not like, you know, not like a Van Gogh, like. No, you know. the, the story of the story of the Warhol market, which is uh, the story of the, you know, sort of 21st century contemporary art market, he is mm-hmm. the driving force behind it, has obscured for a lot of people the fact that, uh, even before his his death uh, uh, in the eighties and and certainly definitely in the in the seventies, after he was shot, uh, uh, you know most uh, serious critics thought his you know real work as an artist ended, and he'd become a bit of a pastiche of uh, himself and a person who was famous for being famous. I mean, you know, runs through the diaries and you know even even after he died, uh, uh, people who were deeply involved in the market would make jokes about you know they hated warhols when they were three hundred thousand dollars but they loved the same paintings when they were three million i mean the 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 period in which your father sold uh, that brillo box it it's more analogous to an artist like damien hurst now you know if you were you were selling a um you know, sort of once celebrated, but maybe seemingly at this moment, kind of one trick uh, object uh, for something you thought was the next big thing. And and I think, you know, it's interesting. You, you uh, I, I almost wanted to see more of your parents' collection. I know you tried to reassemble as much as you, yeah. you, you could. And there, there's a great list there of stellar names and some, you know, who who the hell is that kind of na- name? <laughs> but but that's that's usually the mark of real collectors. Uh, uh, yeah. An art dealer once said to me, you know, the problem with some of the the very big collectors today, with um, you know these great art advisors, is there are no um, no failures in their collections, no work that they just still absolutely love that no one else agrees is an important work, but they'll keep defending it just because the, you know they're passionate uh, about it. And as they, as they should, I mean, I think that um, in the sense, certainly something Robert Chapin often quoted as saying was, you know, it's like collect what you love, and that's the whole point. Is no one, there is no like. It is such an individual thing to say what is art, you know. I mean, my even my husband like will you know like disagree on, like it's like it is such an individual thing, and that, and that was um, I, I appreciate that you saw that because I really did want to celebrate in that and that that kind of montage of all the artists my parents collected. I wanted to celebrate them all equally, and I think they because ha- to me all of them were really pretty um, amazing, and and you know like you know maybe you know maybe um, some of them are not household names, but when I think about their paintings, they had huge you know impact and. Um, um, but it's that is just the kind of crazy thing about the Warhol story is just that it could just change that dramatically because of just the way um, the, these unpredictable. I mean, I think you know some of it is a, it's a profound appreciation for like looking at Warhol from the lens of really looking back and being able to view it from his from you know to see to see it as a whole you know rather than being in it and that's that's, that's always like the yeah. challenge like again it's like needing value and time to kind of really assess, reassess and kind of go oh this is lasting. 
But it's also the participation of uh, dealers and collectors who help yeah. make a market. Uh, you know, again, we people talk too much about the art market as if it's man, as it being manipulated, and and sometimes that same word manipulated can be better described as you know people taking a risk and supporting the artist and making sure that you know when things are for sale, there's a buyer, and when people want to buy it, there's someone to sell uh, 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 stuff, which makes it, it more stable and uh, people easier for them to engage, which may or may not have happened with uh, Peter Young in the same way, uh, and and may yet still uh, as things go on. You know, there's so much interest in the art market right now in rediscovering, um, you know, undervalued masters. You know, people with confirmed bodies of work that who may or may not have been um, as recognized or celebrated, but now in retrospect, you can see uh, the quality of it. I, that does sort of lead me to ask there are a couple of things that are hate it's a movie so you can't tie up everything but right. you, you have this great moment where um your father and uh, peter young meet again and are talking and your father briefly says something about hey maybe you know now that i'm older maybe i'll start you know uh, looking for young artists ag again and it made me wonder your father bought and sold a lot. Did he end up with a certain sort of stable collection or did he just eventually sell and get out of uh, owning art for a period? It wasn't really clear whether, you know, there, there, there was a, you know, a dozen paintings in your parents' ha house and it sort of settled down when he got busy with other things or whether it's just something he moved on to, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, you know, collecting cars or something. Right. He didn't move into other collecting uh, or forms of collecting. Um, he did, I mean, most of the work, like like that montage of the list we've talked about, most of that work is, you know, is now gone. There are a couple of pieces um, um, by some of the artists, um, you know, not the one, like, like we were talking about the different levels and the names, like the ones that are not as well known, you know. Um, but yeah, no, he didn't, he didn't continue collecting and he did eventually really, it's really, it's like, as I say in the film, most of the art really did leave, um, the the stuff that people wanted to buy got sold. The stuff that no one wanted to buy, he got he kept for himself. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, you know, and of course, like to me, they are very still. They're going to always be very meaningful. The pieces that he has because they're from that time, and and you know what? I mean, like I, I think that he had a great great taste, even if not everyone, even if people didn't always you know agree with. Agree. And I also think, you know, again, things change, you know, you just, it's like you were talking about earlier about artists that were not, not as appreciated being, being rediscovered and being reassessed. And um, I think that's always happening. Well, let's also, you talk about people not agreeing and, and there's a, another theme to this story. It turns out your parents are divorced. I don't know how long. Separated, yes. In the context of the movie, it almost it, uh, plays out as if there's this um, lingering resentment over the sale of the Brillo box. I, you know, I viewed the Brillo box like ultimately it's very emblematic of this wonderful thing that my parents really shared because they were so bonded over their love of art and also their love of design, architecture, music, um, even foreign films at the time. Um, and so it was this wonderful emblem of like something that really kept brought them together. And at the same time, it was an emblem of the things that we lost, you know, that were lost in that time also. 
Um, so it wasn't so much that the, you know, it was like the, you know, they're still like fighting over the problem, but you know, but my, my, they did have very different experiences of the conversations that they had about the art. And my mom, you know, very reflective of the era, you know, my mom um, at the time stopped work to raise children was very much the homemaker. My dad would often go to the galleries during the work week. You know, he always cared about my mom's taste. It was always like, Rita, what do you think? You know, but at the same time, my mom really felt like he made those kind of financial decisions about art without her. And, and I, and I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, the decision, the kinds of decisions couples make and the way of the, the decisions we make about what has value, you know, do I, do we keep this? Do we hold on to that? Those are very primal, um, fundamental decisions in a marriage. Um, and consequential. Again, like, consequential, yeah. So again, it wasn't like the art drove them apart. You know, what I mean? the Brillo, you know, the Brillo box was the, the, you know, the thing. So much as a reflection on on those values, you know, like a sort of emblematic of those like those decisions. And I, I thought you did a, a very good job, uh, without beating it to death, of of really bringing that out. I, I think that's what's the most touching part about the. Um, movie, which, you know, starts with the, um, whatever, the headline of the $3 million, but very quickly moves past that to why why art matters to people and how it can be a double-edged sword. You know, it's clear your parents really shared something there. Your father's, you know, you have at the end a sort of almost an elegy. He's very complimentary and almost deferential to your mother about, you know, her level of uh, of taste and, you know, I- I- insight. And yet, as you sort of say that there, there's still a sense of... Um, who gets to make those decisions. And I can imagine that must leave a, a sense of powerlessness to have something that's important to you, uh, you know, get whisked away for reasons that you're told are important, but you don't necessarily share. And I think, you know, and I thank you so much for that. And I think it also just speaks to the whole conundrum of like um, something that is art, right. And hard to, def- you know, like that it's hard, you know, it's this intangible thing and yet it has value in our culture and anything that has any kind of economic value is going to force those types of fraught decisions. You know what I mean? You know, it's not a pure, like, you know, I mean, like if, if, if art wasn't something I could have, if art did not have a transactional role in our culture, you know, if it was just like it's only in museums or artists, artists were subsidized and could give their paintings or something, yeah. or, you know. Well, or if, or if you're, if you're, if your mother had won out and your father had found other ways to keep acquiring the art and here, you know, as you are adults and your parents are getting uh, older, they had decided that you and your siblings, they were going to give you their art collection and you had to make your own choices about which is more important to you, the art itself or what the money you could uh, realize from selling the uh, art. It's, those are not, uh, we, it's easy to lampoon them or, or, or act as if those are obvious uh, decisions, but they're not, especially when some families we've seen the art collection massively dwarves the uh, other assets in, in the family. I mean, just this last season, we had two branches of uh, a single uh, family sell something like, you know, $250 million worth of, uh, of art. That's an extraordinary amount of money. Um, an artist named Nancy Moser, who I interviewed, and she's friends with Robert Schapazian. Um, she worked with him at Lapis Press. And she, her point was always like, you know what, once that money's gone, <laughs> you, know, we, you know, so $250 million is probably a lot to spend. But, you know, if you... Um, 
that you know it's like that artist always says objects are so they're always you know the I guess when you choose to keep that it's like it's always um I don't know I think I think it grows and, and you know as we get older things grow in that sentimental and tangible and value also we could be, I think become more attached to things in a in a way yes I think um, I think uh, 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 collectors do and they change this their significance uh, over time and they become much more personal and less social or either status oriented or just or just the the thrill of saying you got there first and people you know being impressed that you were the one who took a, 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 a you know, a risk on buying a piece of plywood decorated to look like a, um, you know, a, a, a shipping box full of Brillo uh, and all. What I was going to say is I can, I can also sort of see the wheels uh, turning as you're sort of thinking about, about that. Like, gee, you know, <laughs> what if my parents had kept that, that? Like I was saying, like, you know, in the beginning, it's like, oh my gosh, that money, you know. But I think when I think about it now, I just like to me, it is, it, this, this, um, and especially having made the film, because of course, you know, just like the, all these factors interact in the process of making the film has changed the meaning of this box for us in a massive way. But I, I think I could only look at it as just the ultimate, like, you know, object from that time and, and the connection to Andy, you know, I mean, to, to have that, a work by Andy Warhol and he, you know, so influential, but to me also very personally, you know, personally influential as a filmmaker and, um, but yeah, but that is that is part of why um, to circle back to some of the artists that create the appropriations. That was why when I met um, Charles Lutz and saw you know how he was creating not only Brillo boxes, but he created one uh, literally inspired by that sale that he called you know Lot Ten. I, I just thought it was so wonderful to have an appropriation because when I look at it, it has you know it's like these appropriations of Brillo boxes. Like they still there's this continuum between you know the soap pad to what War you know the Warhols wooden sculpture to now cardboard ones made from them and they all represent i think this, the warholian idea you know um so i that, that's a long way of saying that i love my cardboard version <laughs> like, that I have. You know, it reminds me of all those things you know well it's a it's a another iteration of this story that connects you to the original and as well as to the latter part of it the sale so you get to 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 be in it your own way while still recognizing your parents involvement in in that story yeah yeah absolutely well lisa and i um i hope the uh film uh does very well i guess it's on hbo for a couple of months uh, uh, yes it will um debut monday night monday august 7th and then it will be available on um all their on-demand platforms hbo go hbo now um hbo on demand and we are we are airing the day after warhol's birthday so it's our way of celebrating andy warhol and all that he uh, all that he gave us <laughs> quite a lot <laughs> well that's fantastic thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me Thank you so much, Marion. I really appreciate your comments on the film. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 